0: Hi everybody, JP here. Just a quick word of hello. As mentioned during this episode, I actually missed the recording session for this one because I had to assist getting a patient into an unplanned surgery. This is perhaps a too appropriate scenario given today's topic, which is the ans cns section on neurotrauma and critical care, which of course constantly deals with unplanned, urgent, and emergent surgeries. This is a phenomenal conversation between Drs. Wang and Akonkwo, On this section, its role within neurosurgery, and what trauma surgeons and critical care neurosurgeons have to offer to our society. I will remind our listeners that Dr. Okonkwo has been on the show before, back in the early days of Season 1, Episode 28, where he again came on to talk about trauma neurosurgery, critical care neurosurgery, and the role and resource it provides to our society, both in the United States and globally. So again, that's a great episode from Season 1 with Dr. Okonkwo, Episode 28. I'll point you all back to that. Otherwise, strap in for an excellent conversation today between Drs. Wang and Okonkwo on the ANS cns section on Neurotrauma and Critical Care. I know you'll enjoy it.
1: Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is
0: J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization.
1: Now let's get started. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, we continue our mini-series, if you will, on the CNS sections. And today, we have the Trauma Section Chair, uh, David Aquanko. David is a professor of neurosurgery at University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. David, welcome to the podcast. Mike, great to see you. Now, you've been on before, so we're glad to have you back. And uh, why don't you tell our audience a little bit more about yourself, how you came to neurosurgery and all that?
2: yeah well uh, this is my fifteenth uh, year in practice uh, but mike uh, i've I've never in my entire life ever said I was ever gonna do anything other than neurosurgery do you believe that that's awesome yeah and so ever since I was a little kid and I don't perfectly understand why i've I've just always known that this was my calling and at every step along the way growing up in in Virginia Beach Virginia i put myself in positions to challenge the concept, and every time it just got reinforced. And then I spent uh, my undergrad years at the University of Virginia. And when I was 17 years old, I walked into my first neurosurgery research laboratory with Neil Cassell and a gentleman by the name of Kevin Lee, who proved to be a lifelong mentor. Uh, And then that was my segue to meeting John Jane, and then it was over.
1: Yes, the legendary John Chain. So you trained at UVA, and um, you do spine as well, right?
2: That's correct. Yeah, so I spent half my life uh, doing scoliosis and spinal deformity surgery, and the rest of my life, uh, my passion of neurotrauma.
1: Yeah, so so tell us a little bit about that because I think to a lot of folks, uh, they might just think that neurotrauma is just something that is just part of general neurosurgery, right? And and we understand that a lot of surgeons do take trauma call and handle trauma, but how is it different to be a trauma specialist or a trauma and critical care specialist?
2: That's a great question. And I think it is one of the real treasures of, of neurosurgery that such a large swath of our specialty maintains its commitment to that public health service of taking trauma call and that it is one of the most profound responsibilities of our specialty that we are the only group of people who can take the epidural hematoma out of a 19 year old kid's head who falls off his skateboard the wrong way and doesn't need to die. And we can save that life. And turns out we can save a lot more lives than just the young person with an epidural hematoma. And I think that's where the the transition from taking trauma call to being a neurotraumatologist happens. And what I mean by that is that, uh, as I like to remind our trainees and every now and then my partners, when you take out the subdural hematoma, that's the start of the disease process, not the end of the disease process. And uh, so we need a subspecialty focus for those folks who have the the commitment and the perseverance to see things through with with patients who have significant brain injuries and significant spinal cord injuries. And that's not just through the the early stages of the injury. That carries out uh, for years into the future.
1: Yeah. On your original podcast with recording with us uh, in season one, you made the very compelling argument as to why trauma is maybe our most relevant role in society as neurosurgeons, right? Maybe you can recap a little bit of that for our audience.
2: Well, when we think about the full spectrum of of neurosurgery, um, it is our, again, commitment to that public health service of the trauma population that solidifies our specialty um, in the eyes of CMS. Uh, And it also goes a very long way to uh, having these tentacles that reach out far and wide that preserve the the value of neurosurgery across the disciplines. So there is a broad recognition that you cannot um, serve the public health needs without neurosurgery. And then it trickles over into the extent to which we can value neuro-oncology and functional neurosurgery and other specialties because there is a recognition that neurosurgery is an indispensable specialty.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because John Paul is not with us today exactly for that reason, is that he's doing an emergency surgery. And this concept of doing emergency surgery is, of course, a big part of trauma, right? And it can be a plus minus, right, because it's compelling. But there's also a lot of negatives to that. And, and I guess it has to do with how we schedule things and when trauma arrives. And, um, you know, of course, as a resident or trainee, you're just doing the trauma anyways because you're taking call. But as an attending, how is that different?
2: Well, we see that play itself out day in and and, and day out, where um, it, it is a tremendous burden professionally and personally and physically, frankly, uh, uh, to maintain a commitment to a trauma call schedule as as a neurosurgeon. And this is often, you know, unrecognized, um, under under and unrewarded service but it is, it is of vital importance because we save lives. There's also a vast underappreciation for the extent to which we achieve great outcomes with patients with significant neurotrauma, and that's both head injuries and spinal column injuries and spinal cord injuries. All, all of it together, we, we achieve great things, um, but it has a huge impact on Uh, lifestyle. It It has a very meaningful impact on practice building and practice performance. And so I think that we still remain in a place where by and large, we as a specialty have still not yet reached the appropriate valuation for our contributions to this patient population.
1: Yeah, and, and you do a lot of basic and clinical research and translational research, and to me, it's always st- struck me as being a very important space for improvement, uh, both from, from science and clinical practice. Can you talk to us a little bit about what are the exciting areas in trauma in terms of research? Sure. Uh, I, I believe that, uh, that we are in a golden
2: age of neurotrauma research, uh, both on, on the traumatic brain injury side and on the spinal cord injury side. We've seen some, some very recent uh, victories in that uh, we have gotten over the finish line the first blood tests for concussions and TBIs. Uh, and you know that first one was a, uh, what was, was a core lab test, but the most recent one, which happened earlier this year, was a point of care platform that allows for a return of a, of a result in 15 minutes. This is going to revolutionize the, the world of traumatic brain injury because it's going to put us in a position to start evaluating brain injuries in the same way that chest pain is evaluated in the emergency room with an EKG and a blood test. We are very, very close to the moment where the foundation of clinical care for the traumatic brain injury will, will be a blood test plus minus a CAT scan uh, when someone first is subjected to trauma um, to the head. And then there is a parallel effort in spinal cord injury going after the same things. It's a little bit further behind. But I think that, that biomarkers, and in particular blood-based biomarkers, are, are the premier um, focus area for translational research and, um, and getting clinical research over the finish line and into clinical care.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be one of the UNC's, the unaffiliated neurotrauma consultants for the NFL and go to the sidelines at Hard Rock Stadium with the Dolphins. And, you know, the way we, we test these players when we suspect, suspect a concussion, it's really kind of arcane still, right? So you're saying pretty soon we'll maybe be able to swab uh, some saliva or take a quick blood test and we'll be able to know how much maybe brain uh, effects there have been from a concussive event.
2: That is, uh, that is absolutely a possibility on the table. And um, the exact medium that will be most effective, um, that's not perfectly clear yet, whether, as you said, saliva or potentially sweat patches or uh, just good old-fashioned blood. Um, and if it's going to be a blood test, it's going to need to be a whole blood test. So it's like a glucometer where you finger prick the, the, the uh, you know, you do a finger prick Gain a drop of blood, whole blood, load it onto a cartridge, and uh, and do your testing. That is no longer, uh, you know, science fantasy. That that is science reality. And and that day where such a such a test is FDA approved is much much closer than people appreciate.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, David, I'm going to ask the question JP usually asks, which is. For the young person, the say the, the PGY2 resident who says, wow, you know, I'd really like to get deeper into this. I'd maybe think about doing a fellowship in neurotrauma critical care. I want to get really good at this for my uh, future employment. Tell us about the ways in which neurosurgeons inter- intersect in, in terms of something beyond just a typical education in a residency program. Are they doing fellowships? Are they doing postdoc research? What, what, what exactly would you recommend?
2: Yeah, there, there, are, there are many paths forward. So just like there are many roads to Rome, there are many roads leaving Rome, right? And so you can take that foundation of a neurosurgical education and go in so many different directions, which is just another magnificent beauty of, uh, of our specialty. And uh, the last 10 years have seen a very clear focus on neurocritical care and the reestablishment of neurosurgeon's presence in the ICU as intensivists and as the primary caregivers of patients in the ICU. That is bearing enormous fruit for our specialty as a whole. And that took a monumental effort, uh, You know, first through the, the, the senior society that's transitioning over to ABMS for, uh, for leadership of these cast um, uh, neurocritical care fellowships. And it is, as it turns out, the only cast fellowship that can be performed prior to the chief year. So we have now created structure within the the education process for neurosurgery that allows a trainee to graduate with cast certification in neurocritical care, in addition to their um, overall neurosurgical education that positions them for uh, ABNS board certification. So that is a very important pathway, and it has just been wonderful to watch the the growth the significant growth of the number of of cast accredited neurocritical care fellowships across the country and we are now starting to see the 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 fruits born of those efforts with more and more neurosurgeons finishing their training with the proper credentials to do critical care that is an absolute key critical path, but we shouldn't lose sight of other pathways and and other opportunities for success. And those include doing a subspecialty focused in neurotrauma. And that can have uh, different manifestations in the long run. And um, I'm so thrilled to see this young group of neurosurgeons in their first three to five years of practice across the country that have embraced neurotrauma as a specialty and are just starting to do great things. Um, and we're, we're seeing that uh, grow. And for it's not always a ICU-based practice. It is sometimes an ICU-based practice. But in other um, examples, it is simply creating a, um, a real neurotrauma service where uh, you can have a very solid expectation of spectacular care, uh, as well as the follow-up and follow-through for these patients who take months to years to to recover from their injuries, and there really is no better specialty to steward that and to captain um, that than neurosurgery.
1: And so what years can people do this uh, infolded, if you will, fellowship in? Does it have to be a minimum uh, ranking in years?
2: For neurocritical care, it has to be at the PGY-4 level or above. and uh, the neurotrauma fellowship piece of things is getting revamped as we speak, and in fact, we are we are finalizing uh, what that is, what the next generation of cast-accredited neurotrauma fellowships are going to look like. Uh, that has not yet been finalized, um, and then it will go through the proper channels at the ABNS. So stay tuned on that. Um, but by and large, uh, there there will be um, a couple of different. Manifestations of that, um, we're starting to see more and more programs shift their chief year into the PGY six year, which opens the door to a fellowship after the chief year, but during your seven years of residency. And I suspect that that uh, for many of these neurotrauma fellowships, it will fall into into that slot, or you know, a uh, a postgraduate fellowship.
1: Yeah, and and a lot of folks who specialize in neurotrauma and critical care, they they really do a lot of research. I know you have a tremendous amount of extramural funding. I, I want to say it's over a hundred million dollars of extramural funding, or something like that. Is that correct?
2: We've had we've had a great run, Mike, okay. and it's not yeah. it's not it's not me. It's 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 a huge group of of just phenomenal colleagues um, from coast to coast and. You know, frankly, uh, Jeff Manley in in San Francisco is as important a piece of that as as anyone else. But it's so many people inside and outside of neurosurgery that that uh, that are responsible for the team science that underpins the success and then the translational successes that we're starting to score.
1: Yeah, and of course, you know, in a university, that's sort of the coin of the realm now, right? The extramural funding or or I guess the other one would be philanthropic donations, right? But that's, yeah. a, that's a fantastic thing people don't often think about when they're in training. Like, how am I going to become a full tenured professor or advance right. to being chairman or dean or something like that, right?
2: Yeah, and I, I would say that uh, neurotrauma is a beautiful, uh, beautiful pathway for that. Uh, I am asked so often, you know, what percentage of my time is spent doing research and what percentage of my time is spent doing clinical care? And, and I still don't know how to answer that question because I blur the lines so much. And the way uh, that I always look at it is that uh, if you are admitted to my hospital in coma or with a neurologic deficit referable to spinal column trauma, you should be in a clinical research protocol of some kind, that we have a deep commitment to being in a perpetual state of getting better. And I have a little bit of a luxury because I am able to say locally that, it, that I view it an institutional failure if one of those patients is not enrolled in a clinical trial. Now, what that does is it creates an amazing, amazing milieu for these large-scale um, clinical research efforts that I happen to be a part of, and so for me, when I'm rounding in the morning, and I've got folks from my research team who are tagging along with me, and the intensivists and the neurosurgery team, um, and then uh, the rehab docs will join us um, on rounds as well on a weekly basis, and, and and we are and we are working through the patient in front of us and making sure that. That every checkbox is, is addressed related to their clinical care, but we're simultaneously checking the boxes referable to the clinical research protocol that they're on. Which hat am I wearing in that moment? For me, it has created this amazing synergy that, uh, that my, my clinical life and my academic life have enormous Venn diagram overlap.
1: That's fantastic. Now, I, I'm always inspired by your passion when you speak, when you're, you interact socially, and, and you are, you're a clear ideological member of our neurosurgical army, right? Which I love. And um, we've been asking all the section chairs respectively if you were to pick a subspecialty, subspecialty of neurosurgery, why would you want to pick this one. In other words, you know, it's obvious for certain fields, but I wanted you to make the pitch for neurotrauma. Why is it that a young person should say, this is going to be my subspecialty of choice?
2: Mike, I, I, I have, I am on to my third box now in, in my office of, of letters, cards, most of them handwritten from, uh, the patient's uh, and families of people I've cared for over the years, and I've never come across any feeling that is more powerful than to open that envelope and and read uh, the letter written by someone who took the time to say thank you for saving my mother's life, or thank you for what you did for my brother, or thank you for giving us back our dad, and you know, and then some sort of anecdote of of you know, what what they've been able to do with their father since the recovery from, from his injury. It is remarkable. And we do not win every battle, but when we work hard and when we try hard and when we don't give up and when we remain committed uh, to doing everything we can, we win over and over again. And I have yet to find anything More rewarding in life than being a part of giving someone back life and giving them back to their families and loved ones.
1: Wow, that is a wonderful testament, uh, not only to uh, neurotrauma, but also to our field and probably the reason all of us went into medicine in the first place. So, on behalf of JP and myself, and, and again, we missed JP today, but we'll have him back for the next episode. Thank you for coming back on the podcast again.
2: Thank you, Mike. Real pleasure. Appreciate everything that you're doing as well.